Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Happy Mother's Day. If you have your Bibles, just go ahead and open them up. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray over our moms and thank the Lord uh, for blessing us with wonderful mothers um, in our lives. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for your mercy. We thank you for your grace, for your goodness, for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you uh, for the gifts of moms and wives, uh, grandmothers and aunts that you have blessed us with, Lord. Lord, help us to never forget uh, the gift we have in our moms and in our wives. And may we cherish them, not because it's Mother's Day, um, but ultimately because they're from you. And Lord, I pray for those that for Mother's Day is a very sad day. Um, as they are mourning uh, the, 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 the death of their mom, I pray that you would comfort them. And Lord, for those who are struggled to be moms and they have the desire for that, Lord, may you open up their womb. May you comfort them in this difficult time. And Lord, as we open up your word today, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known? Can you, Lord, help us to see with clarity. Help us to behold you. Lord, I pray that in this text that the gospel will clearly be proclaimed and that the gospel will be fully realized and understood. That for us as a church that we would be encouraged by the gospel. And Lord, for those who are here that have never heard the gospel, Lord, has this been already been proclaimed through our songs and our confession and assurance, may it now be proclaimed uh, through the preaching of your word, and may it be understood. May you open up their eyes, their ears, their hearts, and may they respond in faith, and may they trust you. And Lord, just do, do a good work. May there just be such a sweet aroma in this place as we behold you, as we look to you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our series through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And what Paul's been doing is he's been writing a letter to the church of Corinth and addressing 10 unique issues, really not unique, but 10 issues that the church in Corinth particular is struggling with. And really the message in all of these 10 issues that he is addressing is the same thing. Basically he's saying, hey church, pay attention that because of the gospel, we've been made God's holy people. And if we've been made God's holy people, that means we need to continue to work towards holiness. We need to continue to mature in holiness, becoming more distinct from the world. And that the more distinct we are from the world, the more we will grow in unity when it comes to one another. And so my hope for us in this series is that as we look at these 10 issues, that we really understand the main message that we are God's people, that we have been made holy. And if we've been made holy, we need to become what we already are. That means we need to grow more distinct and look more different than the world. And when that happens, that's when the church starts growing in unity as it now faithfully points the world to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the God that we serve. Now, last week, Paul began to address the second issue that the church in Corinth were struggling with. The problem that, the, that they were dealing with was not just the sexual immorality of one church member. Basically, that church member was living and pursuing sexual relationships with his stepmother. And it's like, what in the world is going on here? What kind of church is that? But that was not the only issue. 
the big issue that really Paul was addressing is the issue is that the church sees it, and what do they do? They kind of just turn a blind eye to it, pretending it doesn't exist. And so Paul rebukes them. Paul calls them arrogant, and then he instructs them. And basically the instruction he gives them is that of church discipline. And that church discipline is now forcing them to deal with the actual issue. And so last week we began to talk about church discipline. And from our text, what we learned about church discipline last week, you can listen to the whole uh, sermon um, last week on YouTube, wherever you want to listen to it. So I'm just going to do a quick recap so we can get to the text. But last week, the first thing we learned about church discipline is church discipline involves the entire church. Like all of its members, if you think about it, when Paul is writing this letter, who's he addressing? He's not just writing to the leaders of this church, but rather he is writing to the whole church, which means church. We all must be involved in church discipline in one way or another. And the second principle we learned that what what, what must be carried out with church discipline is that it must be carried out with tears and the goal must be repentance. In other words, when Paul rebukes them, he says, and you guys are arrogant you should be filled with grief. Like you should look at this and you should be sad. You should with tears confront this person. And then I know for for, for us, we read this and we're thinking it's harsh, but he says like, you must hand this person over to Satan so that his flesh might be destroyed, but his spirit saved. And you're like, what does he mean by that? What he means by that is when you kick him out of the church, now all of a sudden he's dealing with the reality and the severity of his sin. He's facing the consequences of his sin. That means his flesh is being destroyed, but then he realizes this is not a life to be lived. Why am I living like this? May I turn from my sin and turn to the Lord? Like, like think about the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, when did he come to his senses? When he was at his lowest low, he was sitting in a dump with pigs, starving. And he's looking around and he's like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not fun. This is not good. I know what I will do. I will go back to my father and I will ask for forgiveness. And that is the idea that Paul had when it comes to church discipline. Now, Paul in his text doesn't give us the steps towards church discipline, but the Bible does. Jesus addresses it in Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17. And there's four corrective steps. And each step is the goal of repentance. And when repentance does not occur, it leads to the second step. So the first step was a private confrontation. And if there's still no uh, uh, repentance, then the second step is a small group confrontation. And if there's still no repentance, then it's the church confrontation. And if there's still no repentance, then there's excommunication. And the goal of excommunication, again, is repentance. And so we learned about excommunication last week. It says excommunication is when the church members can no longer affirm that that self-professing believer is really a genuine believer. In other words, they're saying one thing, but they're living another. And you're not doing it to be judgmental. You're doing it to be helpful, saying, brother, This is not lining up. This is not how Christians are supposed to to live. Turn from your sins and turn to the Lord. And then the principle we learned is that to faithfully engage in church discipline, the gospel must be central. 
Because when the gospel is not central to church discipline, it will either be abuse, which that's basically most of our experience when it comes to church discipline, or it will be neglected, which is basically most of our experience with church discipline. And what we have to understand with church discipline, it's a gift from the Lord. It is a loving act. It provides us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to one another and to grow in our understanding of the gospel. Because why do I confront your sin? Like, well, what's my whole goal? So that you can become a better person? No, my whole goal is to point you to Christ and to remind you, hey, brother, hey, sister, remember who Christ is. Remember what Christ has done for you. He lived the life you could not live. He died the death you were supposed to die. He paid for that sin in full. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame when it comes to that sin. You can freely confess it knowing it's paid for. So turn from your sins and turn to Him. He has set you free from the bondage of sin. He's given you a new identity. That's not who you are anymore. That's who you used to be. But He has made you brand new. He has made you holy. Now start to live the way you've already been declared by the blood of Jesus. And so in our text today, Paul is going to give us the main reason for church discipline. And then he's going to clarify some misunderstandings, which every time we talk about something really hard, there's always misunderstandings, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And then what I'm going to do is we're going to end, of, um, end it up by I want to give you three benefits for church discipline or who are the ones benefiting from church discipline. And somehow I'll try to tie it up with Mother's Day and give moms instructions because who <laughs> preaches on church discipline on Mother's Day? Like, what's wrong with you? I don't know why I do it. I'm sorry. Uh, let's, let's look at uh, chapter 5, verse 6. Here's the second rebuke that Paul offers. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So let's stop here and unpack this because there's so much going on here. First thing that we need to notice is Paul offers a second rebuke. The first rebuke he called them arrogant. The second rebuke now he says, your boasting is not good. Why is he doing that? Again, this is a reminder for the church. It's a reminder for us that as we read it, the fundamental problem was not the man committing the sexual immorality, although that is a big problem. But the bigger problem that Paul is addressing that he's more concerned about is that the church is doing nothing about it. And what he is saying is, your boasting is not good. And so maybe there was a sense of pride and tolerating it. Maybe they started to develop this theology that could accommodate such sexual immorality. And Paul is saying, no, that's, that's, that's not good. Turning a blind eye to this and pretending it doesn't exist or pretending it's not my business or that's okay because it doesn't really hurt anybody. That is not good. And then this is where the text gets a little harder. Paul uses a common metaphor that really has been used throughout the Bible. 
And the metaphor that he uses is the metaphor of leaven that really represents this imagery of sin and corruption that spreads. Now, leaven is not identical to yeast today. Yeast today is a little packet because it's much faster that you open up, you mix with the dough, and all of a sudden, instantly, it starts to rise. But leaven, on the other hand, is a little different. It does the same thing, but leaven is a small batch of dough that's put to the side and it becomes moldy. It ferments over time and it rises and bubbles and it gets all kinds of colors. And then what you do is you take a little bit of that and then you mix it in with the dough that has no leaven in it. And what happens to that leaven, as you mix it in with the dough, it contaminates all of it and it spreads. And the whole dough starts to, to rise. See, I told you for Mother's Day, here I'll give you a baking kind of instruction. That's my tie-in, okay? Go make some bread. What a wonderful science and biblical metaphor in making bread. <laughs> Focus here. In the metaphor, leaven symbolizes evil here. And what does Paul say? He says, don't you know that a little leaven, don't you know that a little bit of evil, not a whole lot, a little bat impacts the whole batch? In other words, if the church is the unleavened dough, if it's a pure dough, it only takes a little bit of evil that is tolerated and it begins to spread and it begins to infect. An unchecked sin can quickly spread like an infectious disease. And then he gives the instructions. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new leaven batch. And here's the part that is fascinating. As indeed you are. In other words, he says, you are a new batch of dough. You are pure. You are holy. That means you must continually confront the corruption of evil that might be looking to infiltrate into the church so that the church may remain an unleavened batch, a pure batch, which that's who you are. So so if you're taking notes, really, here's the main purpose of church discipline. The main purpose of church discipline, if you're taking notes, is holiness. Like, that is what church discipline does. It works towards holiness. Paul reminds the church in verse 7, which indeed you are, you are pure, you are holy. And if you allow this, 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 this leaven bash to infiltrate, this corruption and evil to infiltrate, it will take over. But because you've been made holy, you need to become what you are, which means you need to continually deal with the corruption of evil. And here's a principle we have to understand. Because I know there seems to be this paradox here. Like, like anybody of you sinners... Yeah, yeah, the church is made of of sinners, okay? So in a sense, we're all sinners. 
saved by grace. And yet, because of that grace we've been saved by, we are being declared holy. So anybody a saint here? If you're in Christ, you are a saint and you are a, a sinner. And what Paul is doing is he's not reminding us of our sinful part, which is true, but he's reminding us of our saint part, which is true. He is saying, like, you've been declared holy. You've been declared righteous. Positionally, you are holy before God. Not because of who you are and what you've done, but because Christ has done on your behalf. Now you need to become what you are. And this is the part we need to understand. We do not pursue holiness in order to be holy, but rather because we are holy, we pursue holiness. That's a different ballgame here. In other words, you're not doing the right thing so that God can accept you and see you as holy. No, he already accepts you and see you as holy because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And you're trusting what Christ has done on your behalf is enough. And because you trust in Christ and what he's done for you is enough now, you actively in faith believe that what you are, now you work towards so that you can become that. And basically, that is what Paul is telling the church. You are pure. You are holy. If you allow unchecked sin to spread, it's going to corrupt you. It's going to make you forget that you are holy before God, that you've distinct, separated from the world. So the main purpose of discipline is pursuing holiness. Reminding us, hey guys, we're holy, why? Because what Christ has done. You're like, I don't see that in the text. Great, great question. Look in the text. Like on what basis is the church of Corinth holy? Look at, look at the second part of, of verse 7. We'll just read verse 7 because the second part of it is like, which second part? Verse 7, it says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new leaven batch, as indeed you are. Okay, we've talked about this. But what is the, what is the, the, the basis of their holiness? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's the basis of the, the, of the church of Corinth's holiness? Which if we look on paper, we're like, they're not holy. Look at how they're acting. And yet Paul, despite addressing them in their sin, calls them holy. And on what basis are they holy? Based on the Christ who is their Passover lamb that has been sacrificed. Now let me unpack that for a little bit because for some of you, you know that metaphor. For others of you, you're like, I have no idea what the guy's talking about. So, so real quick here, if you remember in Exodus, and you can read the story for yourself in Exodus, Exodus 11 and Exodus 12, uh, you have the nine plagues that God judges Egypt, and then the tenth plague is the final plague. And in the tenth plague, God says, in my judgment on the nation of Egypt, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every man and every beast. And in that judgment, in that play, God says, but I'm going to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so the question is, okay, how is he going to make that distinction? And the way he's going to make the distinction is he gives the nation of Israel instructions. He says, what I want you to do this very night, I want you to take a lamb, one year old male without blemish, and I want you to sacrifice it, and I want you to take the blood and put it around the door frames of your houses. And that very night, I want you to spend your night in that house. Don't leave it. 
because I am going to walk and I'm going to destroy the firstborn of every man, every people and every beast will be destroyed. But when I see the blood of these door frames, I will pass over and you will be spared. And so when judgment falls and God rightfully judges and he kills the firstborn of Egypt, but he spares the firstborn of Israel, on what basis did he make that distinction? On the basis of ethnicity and race? The fact that they're Israelites? No. On the basis of the blood of the lamp that was put on their door frames. It satisfied God's judgment. John the Baptist, fast forward, so that's a theme in Scripture. John the Baptist picks up this theme a little bit. And he sees Jesus. And you know what he says about Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John sees this imagery of the Lamb of God that was slaughtered and the blood that was spilled that somehow makes atonement for the sins of the world where the world will no longer face the judgment of God because of the sin, because of the blood that was spilled, but he would pass over and spare them. And, and, and Paul, he, he, he picks up this theme again and he says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. He died on the cross to deal with our sins. And by his blood that was spilled for us, our sins have been paid for and the wrath of God has been satisfied. And now we escape God's judgment. And on what basis do they escape God's judgment? On what basis does God accept them and spare them? The blood of the Lamb. And it is the blood of Christ that makes the church holy. All of this, despite God's grace, providing a provision for a way to escape condemnation, and providing his son Jesus to die in our place. And that is available through faith. Like think about this. Just like the people in Exodus had to believe that God would make a distinction. And would spare them and would not rightfully judge them. That somehow this blood of this lamb that would cover this house of this door frame is sufficient. I don't know about you, but if it was me, I'd probably dump a ton of blood because it's like, I don't know if this is going to be enough. And that's the same for us when it comes to Christ. Like we need to believe that God is going to make a distinction between his people and not his people based on what Christ has done and that his blood is sufficient for me. Not based on what I'm going to do but based on what he is going to do, that what Christ has done for me is enough. And what he's done for me, he has made me holy so that when I stand before God, he sees me as holy, righteous, and perfect because of the blood of Jesus. And that's the point that Paul is making. Church, you've been made holy 
by the Passover lamb of God, which is Jesus, that has been sacrificed for you. And in a sense, in Corinth, he says, are you believing that? In a sense to us, he's saying, are you believing that? And all of us says, yeah, I believe it. Okay, good. Then he says in verse, uh, verse 8, if you believe that, if that is true, he says, therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What does that mean? Again, Paul's drawing a parallel. He's picking up Old Testament language. The Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Old Testament was a, was a feast that the nation of Israel celebrated with the Passover lamb, which is very fascinating. The Passover lamb uh, was, was celebrated one day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated seven days. And what that symbolizes, it was a reminder that you are God's holy people and you need to get rid of all the leaven for seven days as you remain pure, distinct, and holy as God's holy people. And it was a reminder for, for Israel, be distinct, be holy. Why? Because God, who is their God, is holy. Under the new covenant, Jesus fulfills the Passover lamb and God's people fulfill the feast of unleavened bread. In other words, why do we not celebrate the Passover lamb yearly? Because the lamb was slain once and for all. We come to the table and reminded of Christ's blood that was shed for us and his body that was given to us. And the reason why we don't celebrate the feast of unleavened bread is because we're the fulfillment of that feast. We are God's holy people, which means as God's holy people, we must pursue holiness. Not just seven days out of the year, but every day. And that's why Paul says, if you believe that Christ has made you holy and you are God's holy people, don't observe this feast while allowing corruption of sin to infiltrate everything, but rather observe this feast with sincerity and truth, which means you're actively pursuing holiness. You're actively dealing with the corruptive nature of sin in your lives and in the lives of your brothers and sisters because of the blood of Christ. Now, as you can imagine, Paul giving this church the instructions, there's always a lot of misunderstandings, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And so what Paul is going to do is Paul is kind of clarify some, some misunderstandings because some people might have twisted his words. Some people thinking this request is kind of unreasonable. It kind of seems unreal. And then he's going to give them the instru instructions again. Look at verse 9. It says this, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? 
Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So real quick here. It seems like from verse 9 that Paul has written a previous letter, which he did. We don't know the contents of the letter because as far as we know, the letter doesn't exist. But somehow, Paul has already addressed sexual immorality. And apparently, in this instructions, he tells them, do not associate with sexually immoral people. So maybe this problem has been going on for quite some time. This person who is now shacking up with their stepmom. And Paul might have already addressed that don't associate with him. And they look at us, well, that kind of seems a little harsh here. This kind of seems unreasonable because does that mean we shouldn't associate with any sexual immoral people? That means we can't associate with anybody in this world. And the reason why they're saying it is because they're wanting to show Paul, your request is unreasonable. It's impossible. No one can do it. So let's not take this instruction very seriously. But Paul clarifies and says, no. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. I'm not talking about non-believers. I'm not talking about those who've not been redeemed, those who've not been declared righteous, those who are not holy. The world, why? Because they're living like the world. They don't know any better. But who would he not associate with? The person who's unrepentant, who claims to be a brother and sister in Christ, and yet their life, their actions, do not match up with their confession. And he says, because by associating with these people, what you're doing is you're tolerating evil within the church. Now, now in clarifying uh, his previous letter that he wrote, he, he now adds a, a list of six sins in, in verse 11. You can see it for yourself. This list is not an exhaustive list, okay? It's not like it only has to be those people on that list not to associate with because there's many lists of sins within the Bible. But here's the point that Paul is making. The point that Paul is making is if a sin so characterizes a person's life and others can place that label on that person, that person must be engaged when it comes to church discipline. So I think there's a helpful principle here because we we learn about church discipline. We're like, okay, so who should be the person we should engage in church discipline? Is it the one who just in anger said something and immediately he needs to be confronted? Like, is it just one sin? Is it two sins? Is it three sins? Is it big sins? Is it small sins? And I think what Paul is doing in his clarification is like, no. It is the person who is habitually continuing in that sin where it now is appropriate almost to put that label on him. That is the person that must be engaged when it comes to church discipline. So if you're taking notes, those under church discipline are characterized by habitual sin. And as they're characterized by habitual sin, and everybody sees it, everybody knows about it, and they refuse to repent, and all the steps have been taken, they've been confronted privately, they've been confronted in a small group, and the church now has confronted them. 
And they still do not want to repent. They still want to continue in their sin. He says, that person, you must not associate with them. And he says, don't even eat with them. You're like, well, what does he mean, don't even eat with them? Well, I, I think at minimum, what it means is don't allow them to sit at the table. Again, what happens at the table? What do we do? We, we eat. We drink. We're reminded of who Christ is and what he's done for us. So at minimum, don't let them sit at the table. On the other hand, it could also mean in a culture where a meal is shared privately, where it communicates that a brother or sister is in Christ. If that's what that meal communicates, then don't have that meal with them. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to interact with them and pretend everything is good because it's not good. In our interaction with them, we want to remind them in a loving way, hey, brother, hey, sister, Things are not good. This is not okay. Like you need to turn from your sins. I like remind you, who, what, remember what Christ has done for you. He died for you. Why would you continue in that lifestyle? This does not honor the Lord. Didn't He make you holy? Shouldn't you want to pursue holiness? That's what Paul is communicating to the church. And so the question is, okay, on what authority does the church practice church discipline? Look at verse 12. Paul says this, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So in other words... We learn a principle. Who are the ones who should come under church discipline? Those outside the church or those inside? Those inside. So if you're taking notes, eh, the, 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 the ones who are under church, church should be under church discipline are the ones inside the church. In other words, we have no business in dealing with the sins of the outsiders in the world. Whose job is it? Who's going to judge them? God is. But it certainly is our business. And it certainly is our job to engage with sin inside the church. And the instruction is remove the evil person from among you, which again is a common phrase throughout the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. It was a reminder for God's holy people. You are holy. You are God's holy people. And if somebody continues and refuses to, to work towards holiness and have, they have this habitual sin that so easily characterizes them, you have to deal with it by removing them from it. And again, this seems harsh, but now we're going to talk about application and I want to show you how it is actually one of the most loving things that we can possibly do. Like, if we just talk about church discipline as a whole, like, I think the Bible is fairly clear we have to engage in it. I, I think it's hard. I think it's gut-wrenching. And I think you know why it is so hard today? Because it goes against our culture more than ever before. Like we live in a culture where discipline is almost evil. Like, 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 think about it. Like, like, as parents with little kids, like, you're slowly but surely being influenced by the world that discipline and punishment is bad. 
Like, don't do that. We, we live in a culture where tolerance is supreme and intolerance is unjust. And so when you discipline your child, you are being intolerant and you're cramping their style and you should give them space and let, their, let them flap their wings and become themselves and discover themselves. Like, that's what the world is teaching us. People, that is a recipe for a disaster. If you do not discipline your child, you know who's going to suffer? They're going to suffer. You're going to suffer, and I'm going to suffer because now I'm stuck with your bratty child. <laughs> like, that's true. Like, like, think about it. Let's all of us not discipline our kids. And in our little homes, it's a mess. And then they become adults. And what happens to kids that have never been disciplined their entire life becoming adults? This is what we're seeing in our culture today. See, I told you I'll tie with Mother's Day. Moms, <laughs> discipline your children. I know this is, I know you're dealing with toddlers and it is discouraging. You're like, how many times do I have to say this? They're not listening and it feels like it's an uphill battle and it's painful and it's gut-wrenching. Discipline them, why? Because here are the people that benefits from church discipline and discipline in general. The first ones, if you're taking notes, is this. Church discipline benefits, first of all, the unrepented people who claim to be believers. They're the very first ones benefiting from it. Again, what's the purpose of church discipline? The purpose of church discipline is holiness. What is the goal of church discipline? So that they may be saved, so that they may repent and be saved. And when you engage in church discipline, you're confronting them. You're removing any kind of false hope that they might have. You're holding up a mirror and you're saying, Look into this mirror and what do you see? Do you see how this is not good? Do you see how this does not honor the Lord? Like that's the same thing with your child. When you discipline your child, you're showing a mirror. You're saying, look at what's going on, honey. Look at your heart. Look at how you're struggling to obey and to listen. But when church discipline and when discipline is absent, they're thinking they're awesome. I'm great. And think about it. What's more cruel? To ignore an unrepentant, self-professed believer who think they're good as they continue in their sin and they post on Facebook how awesome they are in this sexually immoral relationship and then they stand in front of Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, how are you? And Jesus looks at them and say, away from me, I never knew you. And guess what? Now it's too late for any repentance. To me, that's abusive. To allow that person to continue in their sin and we not address it. And now it's too late. That is cruel. But the most loving thing to do is what? With tears. This is wrong. This does not honor the Lord. Providing them opportunities to repent before it's too late. So when you even discipline your own child... What are you doing? You're providing them opportunities to repent, to turn from their sins and turn to Christ, to remind them that they are sinners in need of a Savior so that they may repent. That's the very first ones who benefit from it. 
The second group that benefits, and I'm almost done from church discipline, is it benefits the church. It benefits the church. The purpose of church discipline is so that the church would be pure. Church discipline protects the church from sin spreading. Think about this. Here's an analogy. Why is there certain kids you don't want your kids to hang out with? Because there's not discipline going on. There's not the same common values that are being shared. Because what's your fear? What's going to happen? Are your kid going to influence them? You would think, hope so. No, but that's not the reality. Their kid's going to influence your kid. Sin always spreads. And when sin is unaddressed, it impacts the purity of the church. And so the church, it benefits the church church discipline. It's a loving reminder for all of us. This is how Christians live. It's a loving reminder for all of us. This is who Christians are. Remember of what Christ has done on our behalf. It shows a picture to the world that when church discipline is absent, sin spreads, the people don't know how they should live, and guess what? Now there's no more distinction between us and the world. Church discipline benefits the church. It is for our good. It's for your good. It's for my good. And then the last one, you know who's the last people that benefit from it? The world. The world benefits from it. The purpose of church discipline is that unbelievers would not think that God approves of sin. One of the worst things we can do for the world is to not have any distinction. Seriously, when we look like the world and the world looks like us, why do they need to believe in our God? Why I need a savior? You live like me, you act like me, you talk like me, you have the same values than me. What savior? What, what God? The only thing is you go to church on Sundays. That's it. Does not benefit the world. But when church discipline is present... And now there is a distinction drawn. It begins to benefit the worlds. Whereby, this is what the world sees. They see how Christians engage one another in a loving way. They don't overlook one another's flaws and sins, but they deal with it. They don't condemn one another in their sins, but they deal with it. How do they deal with it? By proclaiming the gospel to one another, by reminding one another, hey, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There's no more guilt and shame when it comes to your sin. You can freely confess it. What's the promise? That if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's faithful. He's just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. There's forgiveness. The price has been paid. We can turn from our sins. We can turn to God. That is called a loving act. And what did Jesus tell his disciples? Love one another. And by this, 
The whole world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Moms, dads, why do you discipline your children? Because you love them. Why do we engage in church discipline? Because it's fun? No. Because we love one another. And by this, the world will see, these people are weird. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But they sure do love one another. This is my charge for us people. Let us be a loving church that understands the gospel and proclaims the gospel to one another. And let us see ourselves as responsible for one another. Let us see our sins impact one another. Let's not just turn the blind eye and say, well, it's none of my business. Glad I'm not that guy's wife. But let's say, that is my business. That's a church member. That's a brother and sister in Christ. That marriage eventually, if it's not dealt with, might end up in a divorce. And guess what? That's going to impact the church in one way or another. Let me engage it for the benefit of them, for the benefit of their marriage, for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of the world. So we may draw a distinction and points to the glories of Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes when we read it, it really is hard. It is gut-wrenching and it confronts us. It hits us right in the face because it's so countercultural. Can you forgive us, Lord, for our neglect of church discipline? Can you forgive us even at the times where maybe we've abused church discipline? Lord, can we help us to see it in light of the gospel? Can you help us to practice it faithfully and diligently and lovingly and graciously as we ultimately point one another to the cross of Christ? Lord, and if there is sin that needs to be confessed, Lord, help us to confess it knowing there's forgiveness. Help us to trust you and to look to your blood, Lord Jesus, that covers our sins, believing it is sufficient. Help us not to turn to ourselves, but to turn to you. What area in your life do you need to confess your sins? What area in your life are you not trusting the Lord with? What sin is characterizing you? Just use that opportunity just to confess. Cling to the blood of Christ that has paid for it in full. And maybe for some of you, you're not a believer, but you're starting, not a believer, you're starting to recognize that there's sin, there's mistakes, there's flaws. And you're trying to fix it, but the reality is the harder you try, it feels like the more you mess up. And you're almost to the point of just giving up. And the reality is you can't do anything about your sin. But there is a Savior who can, who's died for you, who's paid for it in full and can set you free, and his name is Jesus.
And his invitation to you is to believe in him, to trust him and to follow him. So this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, who took your sins and paid for it on the cross in full and who set you free so that you can be accepted by God. There's no more judgment. There is salvation if you trust in Jesus, in the sufficiency of Jesus.